Well, why are we here? Oh, sorry, those are my notes from last week. No, actually, thank you for uh, not writing, coming back, listening to me, or you missed my uh, message last week and you're in for double trouble, so thank you. But what did we do last week? What did we talk about? Well, we talked about the church. The church is ecclesia. It's an assembly. That's, that's all it is. That's all that, that word means. There are local churches made up of a multitude of people, both believers and unbelievers, uh, whether they know it or not. They're part, these, these local physical churches are part of a universal church which is made up of truly repentant believers in Jesus Christ. They're called out of the outer darkness and called together to be part of the body that is the church to be led by the head that is Jesus Christ. Not everyone who is in the physical church are true believers. It's like how you're not a car for being in a garage, but what do you find in garages? Cars. So cars go in garages. That's where we're supposed to be. Those who carry out good works that God has prepared for them before the foundations of the world, they do good works and conform themselves to the hearts of Christ by knowing God more so as to know the one who has created the universe, made us in his image, who reveals us the truth, and from those character is derived what is good and what is not good. And we see the first church pop up at Pentecost, Acts 2, almost with you, Tyler. The first part, Acts 2.42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We come to church to hear what godly, mature, and God-directed teaching looks like, so we can mirror it in our own studies at home, and to be challenged by it, so we can change our lives in community with brothers and sisters in Christ. So why are we here then for more than just one hour to hear the guy up front help us work out the details and themes and lessons that are found in God's Word? Well, Tyler, Acts 2.42 Right. And so that second part is what we're going to cover today. The fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. Fellowship in the Greek. Here's our next Greek term. Koinonia. Koinonia. A close relationship of holding together in community. And when we break down the word community, com means with or together and union. We know what union is. So com union sounds like what word? Communion. Right? That, that's what it is. So fellowship is communion, coming together to join with each other. But we know communion for a different purpose, one within the church. And I will say this, that if you only view communion as this ritual, and rituals are important, it's one of the things I think our society has lost is the importance of rituals. You know, if you ever go to court, I've had to go to court before and testify, and they They've taken away the Bible that you swear on, which is fine with me, because I don't want to swear on the Bible. It tells me in God's word not to. But they say, raise your right hand. Wh- why? Well, I'm not missing a finger. I don't have a brand on my hand. All signs pointing that I'm not a thief or a liar who have uh, testified falsely. And so we still carry that ritual over to say, look, I am trustworthy, and the truth that I say in this court will carry not only in this world, but in the next so rituals are important, but 
I think we view communion kind of as just this ritual. It's all we do is eat some bread and drink a shot glass of juice because Jesus did something like it. Well, I think we fail to see the beauty of such a ritual, and I would suggest, because the New Testament does, that it's dangerous and a flippant act. Uh, Dora, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 and 17. Just verse uh, 16 and 17. Thank you. So here we see the universal church with Christ as the head, identified as the bread. Christ is being identified as the bread. We saw the same symbol of the body as the church in our study last week. Are we not all one body, for we all partake of one bread? It's taking us as individuals and funneling us down, both as individuals, but also as one together. And not just in this physical church, but in the church in the greater this is something that the early church viewed as important and connected intimately with Jesus and the Last Supper. Uh, Maddie, Luke 22, and verses 14 through 20. Luke 22, 14 through 20. Thank you. When does Jesus do this? When does he establish the Last Supper as we know it? At the Passover Supper. And he ties it to the broken body and spilled blood. But of what? It's the unleavened bread and it's the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb who was a substitute for the children of the promise who were called to remove the leaven of the bread that was representing of sin and to accept the one sacrifice of the blood as a covering and to come together to ecclesia. And what we talked about last week is to go out, to go out from Egypt, out from outer darkness, out of Egypt, and the Hebrews ecclesia and assembled and were called out. And Jesus joins the church with the promised bloodline of Abraham, the children of Abraham, that promise that Abraham was told to go out and look at the stars and number them, and those stars will be less numerous than your children. He ties us. He reaches back into history, and he ties us with that promise. But he also ties us to uh, Genesis 3 of the promise of the Messiah. It's what he's there for. They ecclesia, and we are joined together. We come together with the Hebrews, with the promise, and the Messiah. We are the blessings of nation and have children as numerous as the stars. 
for Abraham. We are part of that family. In our own salvation, we are tied to Christ's death. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Romans 6 says, We have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 7, You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to one another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. And 2 Timothy 2, for if we died in with him, we will also live with him. And Jesus uses the symbol of the bread and the wine to tie us to the promise of Abraham. And in them, he ties us to him in a very intimate way, in his death. We join with the unique God-man in his death of dying as the only innocent person that has ever died. The only person. There are people that have been accused wrongly, put to death wrongly, but they're sinners just like us. Jesus is the only one to have ever died truly innocent. We join in, taking, we join in his taking our sins onto himself so that the only one that may face the wrath of God will feel the full force of God's wrath on sin. That has to happen. And in his resurrection, we join with him as being raised to new life to, as joint hairs, and we are able to approach the Father because not only has Christ removed our stained robes, but he has laid his complete righteousness on us. Again, another component of what must happen. And we are tied to the old covenant, and we're grafted in. And what it says uh, that uh, Maddie read in verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. How can we ever share communion so blasé with that promise? Going back to our 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10, verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless is, not a is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? We are joined in communion with that closeness, and we remember it. We join together in this intimate fellowship so we can share the joy of God, saving me because I, me, Patrick, take the elements and consume them and remember them and make sure that my heart is clean and that I don't have to go out and ask for forgiveness for somebody else, that I am worthy to take it, and not for my own worth but for Christ, but also that I do the good works of making sure that I abstain from every evil deed. But not only do I take it, but I get to see you take it. And I get to see everyone else around us. And we share in the greatest miracle God has ever done. He saved us. That's God's greatest miracle. Not just creation ex nihilo, but saving dead haters of God to fullness of life, to be sons and daughters in the church. Fellowship, the breaking of bread is also there. Or Acts 2 also talks about fellowship and breaking of bread. The sharing of meals. This might not seem kind of important in our day where we have modes of travel and abundance of food, but this was a, uh, a level of intimacy for the early church. Bringing non-family members into protection and provision of the house. Meals were a place for discussions and lectures. This is where uh, uh, fathers taught their children 
the, 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 uh, the Hebrews would sit down with their children this day when they weren't working, when they rose up, when they slept, when they ate food. This is the time where they taught, and we still continue that. Think about the makeup of the people of the early church. Men, women, eating together, slaves, free, rich, poor. These people all came together in one central location, sharing a meal, hospitality, resources, time together, and aid. Uh, this is a letter. It's, it's a little bit lengthy. I cut it a little bit down, but it's so important. It's from the second century. It's a letter to a king from uh, a, 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 a person named Aristides, and he says this, But the Christians, O king, they know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and of earth, in whom and from whom are all things, to whom there is no other God as champion, from whom they receive commandments which they engraved upon their minds and observed in hope and expectation of the world which is to come. They do not commit adultery nor fornication, nor bear false witness, nor embezzle what is held in pledge, nor covet what is not theirs. They honor their father and mother. They show kindness to those near them. And whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do not worship idols made by the image of man. And whatsoever they would not do that others should do unto them, they do not do to others. And their oppressors, they appease or comfort and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Their daughters are modest and their men keep themselves from every unlawful union and from all uncleanness. If one of or other of them have slaves or children, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they do, and when they have done so, they have called them brethren without distinction. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another, and from widows they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And if they hear the one of their numbers in prison or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is any among them uh, that are poor or needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast for two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. They observe the precepts of their Messiah with much care, living justly and soberly, as the Lord their God commanded them. Every morning and every hour they give thanks and praise to God for his loving kindness towards them. And for their food, their drink offering, they offer thanksgiving to him. Where did we get this? Well, in 1 Peter 2, he tells us that Christians should not be active, violent rebels, but to live peacefully with everyone. And if they treat you unfairly, count it as joy that you suffer unjustly in the same way that Jesus suffered. Again, tying us to the work of Jesus. My question to me, to me, not to you, but to me, is can I be described in the same way by an outsider like Aristides' letter? I'm sure you guys are great. I don't think I match up to what he has written. Am I giving Jesus a bad name by associating my actions to his name? This is my life goal in this area. This is what my desire is. If someone is going to speak ill of you, force them to lie about you and make it not believable. One of my job duties uh, that I have at work is I have to sometimes escort people out very kindly and nicely and sometimes not so nicely. But what I need to do is I need to be nice and love my enemies and not, uh, not create too much stress or harm. And so sometimes they'll call and say, oh, that, that guy that uh, kicked me out yesterday, he was, he was awful. Uh, he told me to have a good day when he, when he told me to leave. 
wait, hold on, he told you to have a good day when you left? Yeah, but he said it very sarcastically. Okay. And he, all he was doing was cursing at us as we walked out the door. And then my boss comes to me and tells me, and he goes, guess what I just had? He's like, yeah, it, it's fine. Why? Because he knows that I don't have that. I don't, I'm not a person. One of the, the, the miracles of my life is when God saved me, he cleansed me from a, a bad tongue. And I don't have that desire. And I show that. It's evidenced in my work, in, 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 in my life. So that way when people come to other people, they have to lie about me. That's, that's, a, good, that's a good witness. I, I enjoy that one. But what context does this testimony happen in? It happens in the church. That's what Aristides was talking about. He was talking about the people of the church that he knew. Surrounded by good examples and loving people, you can invite others to call, call you out or to encourage you or to pray for you. I don't know if you come on Wednesdays, but there are all sorts of people sharing stories and teaching. Our church has a food pantry and a care closet. It's clear we highly value God's word and teach it, even on days that don't begin with Sunday. Weird. Here's just some of the things that uh, I experienced within the last month when I was uh, preparing for this message. Uh, there was discussions on uh, a systematic theology book. Oh, you are reading that book? Let me tell you my experience with it. That was a great conversation. Uh, there was a former member who used to go here who moved, and they asked how he was doing and wanted to know uh, if he found a, another church. Care. Uh, I offered a, a book on how to teach poetry to uh, child, uh, children uh, that, uh, that was offered. Uh, homeschool resource help, recipes, taking food to the elderly, English as a second language resources for strangers who just walked in the door prayer requests, and then follow-ups on prayer requests. Helping hands, teaching people how to help other people within the church who had a need, and money disbursements for those in need. That's what this church offers. All around, a meal prepared for this family that has gathered together. And I don't say that just because my wife cooks all the food with the great group of volunteers, but it's, I'm, I'm here, so I notice those things. But think about it. Th think about why do we go on dates with people out to what? Out to eat. Where are some of the, our best conversations around food? It's no wonder that the New Testament puts an emphasis on a meal, on gathering together, on sharing these resources. Uh, if you'll turn with me to Titus 2, I've got this one. Titus 2, that's in the New Testament, by the way. One day I will preach on, like, Obadiah. That'll be great. All right. Titus 2. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, starting in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the young men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Make them lie about you. 
But what do we see? We see the older men and older women being an example and to, verse 3, train young women, and verse 6, urge the younger men. This isn't just about age. It's about sanctification in Christ. It's about those who are older in the faith. One of the best things you can do is find someone in this church and ask them to be your mentor, someone to come alongside you. And each of you, go over a book, meet once a month, or ask them to show you how to do woodworking or sewing or whatever it is. Get six of your friends together and ask someone you know to challenge your group to go through John Calvin's Institutes or Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. If you're afraid someone might say no to that, this is what I dare. I dare anyone you to ask someone to actually say no to someone coming up to them and saying, uh, Mr. Jim, Mr. Miss Jane, uh, I was listening to this dude in class talking about finding a mentor, going through a theology book uh, to, with, with them and help them to be a better Christian and be there if I need any help or prayer. I've come to respect you, and I see you have a heart for the Lord that I want to emulate. I dare the person that you ask that to say no. And if they do, come find me, because I'll talk with them. Then, when your time comes, when you look like the older man or older woman for someone younger than you, seek them out. It's one of the things that I did. Uh, if, if you remember, if you know Tony Gavan or the Gavans, I well respect that family, and I well respected him. We shared a common joy of uh, philosophy and apologetics, and we just sat down every other uh, Saturday uh, in the morning. Gross, who wakes up in the morning? I don't know. Uh, and we just had coffee, and we just went over a book and went through it. And at some point in time, we thought, why don't we record this and put it out? So, like, everyone has a podcast, so now I have a podcast this is my plug for it, cavetothecross.com, if you want to. That's fine. If not, that's all right. But what we do is we just read a book on theology, and we just discuss it. Now, for the audience, we break it down, but we have a discussion on it. It's great. It's amazing. I've learned so much from him. I so respect him. I love that man. He is a second father to me. I respect him so much. And that mentorship, he moved to Texas, and I still meet with him because I value that friendship. Between the 1930s and 1949, there was an informal literary discussion group at Oxford University. That's in, that's in the UK. UK is in Britain, England. Okay. The members would gather together and admit people who were open to sharing their love of literature and open to critique and critiquing the members' writings. They challenged each other to be better writers, better critics, expand their areas of writing, and to be better presenters and defenders of their work. Some works uh, read by notable members of this group include little-known books such as the Outer Space Trilogy, the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis, or The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, just little things. The group was called the Inklings, and they challenged each other to do good work. Now, Tolkien hated Narnia. He thought, he thought that Aslan, Aslan is Jesus. We get it, uh, uh, Lewis. And Lewis is like, no, I'm going to leave it in. And Lewis had some things to say about, uh, about uh, Lord of the Rings. So it's amazing that... Two people coming together in a group setting, encouraging one another, and just doing it, just informally. They embodied Proverbs 27. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend and profuse, terrible, are the kisses of an enemy. As iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. That's the type of community 
we seek as fellow travelers in our sanctification process. And where does it happen the most? It happens in the church. It happens when we gather together. And of course, we, talk, we have to talk about prayer. In 1 John 4, 7, we are called to love one another. In Romans 12, 10, we're called to love one another with brotherly affection. In 1 Peter 1, we're told to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I think love seems to be a big key here. We serve a God who is Trinity. Love is relational and directed at someone. God did not have to learn love as each member of the Godhead loved each other before creation. It's one of the things that uh, Allah has to create in order to love creation. He has to learn love. Our God loves within the Trinity. That love, that community, and that sending out into the world is talked about in John 17 in Jesus' high priestly prayer. I love you and you love me in the same way that I love the church, is what he talks about. It's shared in the community of the Godhead, and then it's directed out to Jesus' followers to go forth from him, and that's the church. All right, Tim, 1 Thessalonians 5, kind of a bigger passage, but not really. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 26. Thank you, Tim. We aren't just here only for the good times. And we don't just help only in the bad times. Our praying for one another shows our focus is directed up towards God and directed out towards others. In uh, the ministry that I help with, I get so many emails talking about how people couldn't find a good church in their area because the church has too many hypocrites or it didn't teach the word right. Friends, if you find a church that doesn't have hypocrites and teaches the word perfectly, do not join it. You will ruin it. They would want to be encouraged to use only online lessons in, as, their, as their church and online preachers as their pastor. That's not what we're called to do. Here's what the Bible says to do. If, if you want to be very high and mighty and follow what the Bible says because the other uh, uh, churches in the area don't, here's what the Bible says. Go to church. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, pray without ceasing, greet all believers with a holy kiss. Don't worry, I'll explain that. Be part of God's family together. Not through computer screens, not, uh, oh, you know, you don't really have to go to church. It doesn't affect my salvation. 
no, this, this is important. All right, holy kiss. Believers were often ostracized from their families, and this intimate and close contact was an outward sign of welcoming. For us, it would be a handshake and a side hug. Christian side hugs, that's what we do here. Here's my question. Is that how you're treating the people in this church? Even the annoying ones? Even the ones you don't agree with? If you struggle with that, wait until you get married. Realize that even with the best of love, forming a relationship takes effort and self-sacrifice and communication, and for you to decrease and the other person to increase. And if you want a good example of that, talk to my wife, not to me. But our relationship in the community of the church will be a struggle. How do we know this? Look at the letters of the New Testament. What are they? They are letters written because something is happening wrong or misguided in that church. And God is using that to sanctify the church and then the universal church as a whole. How do we know that? Because these people didn't hide the messages to them, but they saw them and they copied them. And under great penalty, they expanded that to the empire of Rome, to the churches in the area. The apostles never called for being uh, written to abandon the church, but to reform it and conform it more and more to Christ's image. The change of our hearts and the hearts of others starts with petition of God, who is sovereign. He is Lord. It's why we pray. He is love, so we pray. Who desires communion, so we pray. Who desires fellowship, so we pray. Who changes hearts, so we pray. Who builds up men and women for appointed times for good works, so we pray. So here's the challenge you have before you as being called out of the world, but still being in the world. Men, the whole world is against you. You will be deemed worthy by the world for just the work that you do, the money you make, and how little you get in the way of who wants the world to continue on the wide path to destruction. You will be told to build this world, and then you will be chided on for wanting to use it as a means to glorify God. The virtue and values that you have that allows us to get where we are will be shunned and swept under the rug for the new society and the new morality. And I'm not talking about just this one, but whatever one comes to replace it. And just like any society that steals from another, it soon runs out of the currency of other people's hard work. And you will be blamed for the downfall of a bankrupt and dead system. Where will you turn to be strengthened? To share in the fortification of others who pledge fealty to the one who created and ordered the universe, who calls the dead to life, who has called us to live righteously according to the standard he imbued the universe to reflect? Who will you build it with on top of the dead, dry, brittle bones of the dead that hate you in your new life? Will you treat those guys around you as brothers and not just people to tolerate? What would it look like if you have a a group of close guy friends that you pray for, that you pray with, that challenge you to do better, and to read harder theology books together? And let us not only stick to uh, to be inspired by those around us in this time and this place. Hebrews 12 tells us that since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith. It is a journey. This was a message written to the Hebrews in the early days of the church who had the Old Testament and the apostles to look at. We have 2,000 years of church history of godly men and women who existed during times of persecution and peace and war and plague and times of growth and times of reformation, of attack from the crown, the pope, Viking raiders, teaching wolves disguised as sheep, liberalism infecting the church, you know, those things that we definitely don't know about today. Let me plug another podcast that I've been on. It's a great one. Uh, They take uh, uh, an old sermon that hasn't been heard before, and they read it and provide some context for uh, who the person is or why it's reading it. It's Revive Thoughts. If you go to cavethecross.com, mine, slash Revive Thoughts, uh, you'll find all the times that I've been on there. But those are the mediocre episodes, and there are better ones out there. And still, the church has survived all these things. They've thrived in the thicket of it all. And we join those in a great call to witness. We turn from young men early in our faith to old men. Does your relationship with those of the church exhibit an inspiration for others to ask to join you in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayer? Will you treat the women as fellow heirs of God, as sisters who are to be protected and sacrificed for and encouraged and taught and called to deep spiritual sanctification? Don't only seek after the perfect woman for you. Seek to make yourself a man seeking after God's own heart so that you can be the perfect man for someone to find. Women, the whole world is against you. You will be deemed worthy by the world for how you look and how you have overturned the old ways for the narrow path of life for the new ways. And when the new ways become the old ways, you have better have always been for the new, new ways, or you'll be ostracized. You're encouraged to see yourself worthy when you compare yourself to others. With your friends, you must put down and degrade men around you. And uh, when you're with your other friends, you must degrade the women that are not there. You will be worthy for how you raise your children to continue to rebel against God. You only hold value at work and how you can most act like men while putting them down at the same time. How will you be known? Will you have worked to look the best, to be the best in your field, to accept the path of least resistance to the world? And when you have fulfilled your usefulness, your beauty fades, when you're replaced by the next best thing, when the values you took on no longer follow the path of the majority, what will you be known for? Will you be known as the gossip or being the godly woman trusted with confidence of your friend? Will you be known for honoring the godly brothers in your midst and listening to the wisdom of the older women? Will you appease those looking to use you up or will you glorify God with the good works that he has given for you? Are the books that you will read a source of glorifying yourself and feeding your self-worth or will you challenge yourself to know God first and conform your heart to the heart of Christ? Please read more theology. It's needed. I asked you last time to embrace rebellion against the world. We all like that one. That was good. After the death of Christ, there was about 100 followers. How could 100 people make a difference? They did. We're evidence of it. In the middle of Ephesus, the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, Paul spoke in a theater of 3,500 people who came to watch fights to the death and plays of the hypocrites, the actors. He used the tools of the word to preach the good news, and Paul used it to convert the rich and the poor and the slave. 
uh, Demetrius, the silversmith, stirred up against Paul for ruining his trade of idol-making and the tax system of Ephesus. The gospel message ruined one of the biggest trades of one of the biggest cities at one of the biggest pagan centers at one of the biggest tax sources of Rome. And all that's left today of this wonder is marshy swamp and rubble. The stronghold of Rome at Cappadocia became the first church buildings carved into volcanic rock, and they became an underground network for some to hide when Muslim raiders would later chase after Christians. Christians used the Roman roads to spread the gospel. All roads lead to Rome. You could walk the, the Roman roads and feel protected if you were a Roman citizen. We use those roads to send the gospel out. We use persecution as motivation, and Christianity conquered the world, not by sword, but by word. Paul was beheaded, and yet the rich were pulled to brotherly love for their slaves and their poor. Men who sought prostitution became men of one wife. Women who sacrificed to idols for their desire now focused on prayer to the known God. New societies were formed, and stories they told still carry us along today. Paul stood in the midst of idols in a world and called people to rebel against the ideas of the day, and some laughed, and others ecclesiaed. They gathered together to him. In Acts 17, Paul rebelled against the status quo and proclaimed Jesus as Christ in the midst of the synagogue. And some of them were persuaded, this is what Acts 17 says, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devoted Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Some hated this and dragged out some believers to the city authorities and declared, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also and acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. So again, my question is, how will you serve? And who will you serve? Brothers and sisters, ecclesia with me. Ecclesia with us. Ecclesia, assemble together with us in the church and the universal church. As we live in a world where you're called to continue to turn the world upside down and declare that there is one king, and that's Jesus the Christ. Thank you.